Hello folks, welcome to the Raw Hospitality Show Season 2. We've had a little break, but while we're having that break, we're interviewing some extraordinary people. We've got about six uh, interviews in the barrel right now. Some really fascinating subject matters, people in the industry that have pivoted, gone through the COVID uh, struggles, which are kind of still here when this uh, comes out. They're starting to fade a little bit in the US, but we had some great conversations with some awesome human beings. I can't wait to share the episodes with you. This is season two in the barrel, ready to rumble. Liam Tomlin is one of the most awesome human beings I know. We talk about our struggles in the kitchen. We talk about the future. We talk about the pain. We also talk a little bit about COVID, but what we do really embrace is his ability to empower young chefs across South Africa and make them rock stars. And rock stars in a way that they own their own restaurants, they work with him. He is the curator of the culinary side of extraordinary bunch of restaurants in South Africa, an extraordinary human being, and, and most importantly, like one of the world's best chefs. I can't wait to introduce you to Liam Tomlin, episode two, The Raw Hospitality Show. All right, we're here with the fantastic Liam Tomlin. It's been a long time since I've seen you in Australia, and it's been a long time since I've seen you. Welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. It's oh, great to see you. You've got a glass of wine behind that screen, and it's late in the afternoon where <laughs> you are, and I'm drinking yes. I'm drinking water because it's early in the morning here in New York. So, um, yeah, but it, it is evening here, okay? So, yeah, I know. So but viewers don't think I'm a I'm bit also, of an alcoholic. Or... No, no, no. I'm just actually really jealous. I had a couple of bottles of wine last <laughs> night. But um, so, tell me about you, Liam. I mean, the last time we, um, well, the last time I saw you, I was cooking a wedding uh, in Cape Town, where you, you're based yeah. in Cape Town still, right? Yeah, still yeah. here. And I was cooking a wedding in Cape Town uh, for a friend of mine, and I still remember the meal I had, uh, and I remember screwing up a night and not being able to come to your restaurant and you preparing me this incredible Italian meal. And then I came the next night and it was breathtaking. I still remember the dishes. I've still got pictures of those dishes. But the last time I'd seen you, if we could start with your life, um, was back in Australia. I think you were you were running a fantastic restaurants, um, you know, for I don't know how many years. And I was involved in restaurants and we kind of saw each other from time to time in the bars. And sometimes I'd, yeah. I'd, I'd eaten one of the restaurants of yours, which I absolutely loved. How long ago was that? Wow. Um, I think we left Australia. It must be going on close to 16 years now. Yeah, wow. And and, and I think yeah. I remember you uh, with the uh, running the Cassis restaurant in one of the um, tower buildings in Sydney. That's right. Yeah. yeah. At Shifley Tower. That's right. That and was I was re- part of the 41 group with Dietmar. Yeah, so you, you guys were killing it. You and Dietmar. And I remember you being the, the hottest chefs in Australia at that time. And I remember getting a bit of shit from you because I used to come in and remember that lamb shank dish you did? I think it was with polenta. Um, was yeah. it, there was this beautiful lamb shank with polenta and I'd come in and I'd order the same thing over and over again. And then, you know, the waiter would come to me and always go, fuck, he just wants you to eat something different. But it was such a great dish. I still remember that dish. Uh, you know, they're, they're those kind of things I loved. But that was you were, you were doing a lot of different stuff. You opened an amazing restaurant called Bank. B-A-N-C. Yeah. Um, it was it was uh, applauded by the food media, applauded by the client. I mean, everybody loved it. But that restaurant has become an incredible incubator for some real talent, right? Like a lot of the chefs that worked with you in those days have blossomed off to their own restaurants and gone through their really interesting career path. Um, do you miss it? Mm. Um, I miss the people. You know, I'm still in touch with all of those chefs. Yeah. I still keep in contact with all of them. Um, 
even to this day and I've always followed their careers with great interest and they have they've gone on to do amazing stuff you know there's two of them running two Michelin star restaurants one in Dublin obviously Brett Graham at the Ledbury in London yep. um, do I miss it I miss the people yeah um, I don't miss bank as such I mean that was a very top end very demanding restaurant having said that I mean we've got eight restaurants now yeah um, and we, you know, we still sort of incubate the same sort of quality of chefs. Um, you know, I've always, I've always had the knack of attracting or finding and keeping good talent. Um, and we seem to be doing the same here, but I've structured it differently here. One of my biggest mistakes ever in Australia, and I regret it to this day, was not offering those guys, not investing in those guys like financially to get them into their own restaurants. Right. And that's what we do here now. So I've got, uh, like I say, several restaurants. Four of them, I've got partners with chefs where right. they've got equity in the business, where they've got ownership, um, where they run it completely. I don't physically cook in any of our restaurants anymore. I'm yep. involved in as far as I, I do more the business side of it. I put the deals together. Um, I I do, like I said, the business, the back end of the restaurant, sure, I sure. give advice where you need it. And I'll, I'll come up with the concepts and the ideas and the interiors and the fit out and the building part of it, and then put the people in and let them do what they do best, which is cooking. You've got, you've got, and it works really well. But I got, wish I'd done it with some of the guys in Australia because the talent that came out of there, Matthew Kemp, Warren Turnbull, Justin North, you know, Brett Graham, uh, um, Daryl Felstead. Uh, there's so many of them came out of there were just brilliant. Imagine doing a dinner one night with all those guys in the kitchen. That'd be pretty impressive, right? I think it would end up in... in oh, we should do so it in New York. Yeah, get you all to New I York. Take the thing. So you've got now, yeah, you've we, got eight venues. You've got seven in, in South Africa and one in Barcelona. Is that right? Yeah. And is there right. another one on the way? Uh, we've got a few. We've, we're looking at another site in Barcelona at the moment. Um, I've got two... I've got a new site here that we're going to put three different restaurants into. Wow. And I've got another venue we're negotiating at the moment. So, yeah, we, I, I would say by the end of this year, we'll probably have 10 or 11 restaurants. So, so when you say you one of the biggest regrets, um, so for the audience that don't know the history also, when you say one of the biggest regrets not um, put giving equity or partnerships to the chefs, is, is it because you're essentially are helping train this talent and then they move on and you're constantly looking for new talent? Or is it it's just much more work because you're basically the person that has to do everything. Look at, no, I think it's, you know, identifying brilliant talent yep. and giving them an opportunity. Not everybody, you know, not every talented chef is a great businessman. Yep. Um, and, you know, back in the bank days, I definitely was just focused on a plate of food. I wasn't focused on anything else. You know, I was in my early 30s. I was pushing to be best restaurant, to win all the awards, the accolades, all of that. That's what was important to me then. Yeah. That's not important to me anymore. It, what's important to me now is bums on seats um, and successful restaurants. But, you know, the young guys I've got working in my kitchens, it is, it's very important for them to chase the accolades and what. So I give them the canvas to work, to work from. Um, but for me, it's very, very, very important that somebody is watching what they're doing, watching the cost, the overheads, et cetera, et cetera, and guiding them. Yeah, um, and they all, they all learn. I mean, I, but I was only focused on a plate of food. It's kind of, it's kind of interesting because, you know, you know, it'd be great to have, you know, if we went back to our younger days, having somebody mentor you through it, we, const we really didn't. You and I were in leadership roles very young, 
And I remember yeah. we opened uh, a restaurant three years ago, my last restaurant in Australia with uh, Santini and Bar and Grill in Perth. And we won Best New Restaurant. And the following year, we won Best Restaurant. And I was really happy for the staff. And somebody said to me, so how do you feel? Do you feel amazing? And I said, ah. you know, I said, we're going to go back to work tomorrow and everything's going to keep going. I said, you know, I said, I'm more happy for my crew to get it than myself. And they said, why? And I said, because this isn't like an Academy Award where yeah. you get an Academy Award, your next movie goes up 300% in your fees and, and life gets a little bit better at least. You know, I mean, sure, you can make it, you can have another dud. But I, in the hospitality industry, it's very different. You get an award, you say thank you very much. Maybe you get a physical award. A lot often you don't. Uh, and then you go yeah. back to work and do another 18 hours and it actually gets, your life gets harder because expectations are even greater. Do you feel like that? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we, we've, I remember when uh, Bank, got best restaurant in uh, Sydney Morning Herald restaurant of the year, gourmet traveler restaurant of the year, all in the same year. Um, and people walked in, you know, because we'd gone from a two hat restaurant to a three hat restaurant overnight, people walked in with massive expectations. And, you know, we got three hats because of what we were doing when we had two hats. Um, and nothing changed, nothing changed. And then you get to that level and there's only one way to go, and that's you, you, you try and stay there as much as possible. But it's like everything, every successful Formula One driver, every successful premiership team, every number one artist, you know, there's only one way, and it's down. Eventually, you, you come off that pedestal. It's kind of um, interesting. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because there's a few notable chefs in Australia that have spent their life getting awards, and they're now dropping out of the restaurant game in the scale, you know, with a lot of restaurants. Yeah. And, it's, and you just sit there and you go, and you just don't talk about it anymore. I mean, no one will remember in 10 years, apart, apart from our staff, our awards, right? Um, yeah. and, and that's fair because you're only relevant to the, what, you know, to the next play that you put up. So, you know, the next plate of food. But it's really interesting. It's such a, 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 almost a sickling game where it's recycled over and over again. You, you win an award, then you chase it, then you, you work incredibly hard. And I think it sounds to me like you're more now um, excited about the process, which is what I'm excited about as well. Not the end game. There is no end game. It's the process of developing young people and creating new product. Is that is that where you get off? Get off now? Yeah, I love all that. I love the. I love you know finding the space. I love coming up with a concept, the design, then the whole process of building, hiring, opening up that whole part of it. I mean, I'm still very um, particular about consistency. Yep. You know, I never said Bank was the best restaurant in, in Sydney or Australia, but I always said it was the most consistent, one of the most consistent restaurants. Um, and I try to do that in everything I do, whether it's a restaurant, a bar, whatever we do. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm really, really push with our staff that we've got to be consistent. Right. You know, and, and we set the benchmark, whatever it is, but that's, that's it. And we've got to be consistent. You know, we're charging, I don't know, $10 then it's got to be the same. That $10 has got to be delivered every time exactly. It can't change from sure. one day to the next. So I want to ask you and about... That, that's sorry. very strong about. Well, I want to ask you about COVID and the community and charity work. I've been watching, you know, the last year has been horrendous for restaurants worldwide. None of us have ever been in this position. Obviously, mm. watching what's happening in South Africa was a lot of similarities was happening in New York where we were just shut out from our businesses completely. Yeah. You were very vocal. You're on TV. You're in the frontline press. How did how was it handled? Did you see how it was handled? Was it handled 
in a way that you would have handled it? Did, was it professional? I mean, I noticed there was a lot of um, protests. Did, what did they do right and what did they do wrong? Look, it, you know, Robert, it was handled professionally and they did do the right thing and they, and they did it very early on and closed us down very quickly and put all the protocols in place. Um, but unlike first world countries, we don't have the assistance um, that you would have, say, in Australia or Europe or America, where yep. we, we, we don't have any government assistance at all. Yeah. So it was extremely, extremely difficult, um, especially, you know, you know, Cape Town a little bit, but we've got restaurants in the wine regions as well, and particularly in Franschhoek, where I would say 90% of the people in Franschhoek are employed by tourism in, in one form or another, whether right. it be in a hotel, a guest house, um, as uh, tour operators, uh, the vineyards, the tasting rooms, the restaurants, the cafes, the, the wine tours that go on there. I mean, basically overnight, everybody lost their job. Wow. Um, and and there, was, there was no support from the government. And there's no there unemployment was, benefits or anything like that? Yeah, there is, but it takes a long time to get. And, and it, it's just, it's, yeah, it takes months and months and months and months. We, we don't have infrastructure like the likes of Australia or America or whatever. And there's a huge amount of corruption here as well. So yeah, of lots of money just disappears. And, you know, there's a lot of corruption here. Um, so I was very frustrated by that. And I happened to just put a photograph out one night on Facebook just showing how many jobs were at um, on the line in our restaurant. And then it just rolled from then and it turned into this big thing called Job Saves Lives, which turned out to be a big demonstration in the city, right across the country in all the major cities. And then it got huge TV coverage and uh, social media and press and everything. And yeah, I sort of became that figurehead for that year. I it saw wasn't that. done intentionally. Yeah. But it just, it just happened. It was a really powerful um, campaign, right? I saw that. I saw a lot of pictures with chefs holding signs up saying "Job Saves yeah. Lives," and and yeah. also I think if I remember correctly, there were a number of employees on there as well, right? In each venue, that was really powerful yeah. because even in a Western country where potentially have all this money, I mean, we had I think three million, and I could be wrong, plus people flying from Europe with COVID, uh, some of them with COVID. So we actually you know, we're so concerned about China uh, that we ended up with Europeans flying into New York and we didn't really know, nobody really knows what to do. I mean, at any level. I mean, we were burying, burying bodies like there were no tomorrow, um, yeah. coupled with the fact that the data wasn't clear. And I don't know how much of it is real either because suddenly no one was reporting the flu. Nobody's dying from all these other things that they usually die from influenza. It's just everybody dies from COVID now. How much of it is, you know, I believe in COVID, you know, I've been vaccinated, blah, blah, blah. But I don't know how much of the reporting has been real. What about in, in South Africa? Are the, have the numbers been real or are they downplaying it because of the corruption levels or? No, I think it's, I think it's pretty, pretty fair. I think it's pretty real and realistic. Um, I must say they, they have controlled it very well. They've done, they have done an amazing job. It's very difficult though, because you know, we've got a lot of illegal people who come across the borders from the different African countries. So, you know, the population here is anywhere between, I don't know, 58 and 60 million, but we're not 100% sure what the real population is. Right. And then we've got massive townships. Um, and, and quite honestly, I, I really don't know if all the COVID cases 
would have been counted correctly. Yeah. If you if you consider how big these townships are and how many people could have died in this. I, I really don't know. But I mean, I think we're sitting on something close to 60,000 deaths. Right. Um, you know, and, and we've had, you know, we have daily reports like the rest of the world um, where the health minister comes on TV and he tells you how many people are in hospital, how many cases have been counted that day, how many people have died. It's been, it's been very, very professionally done. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure how many... Like I say, we, yeah, I'm you not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure how many have died here. I'm just looking at my producer. I think it's over five hundred thousand, right? In in America. Um, oh yeah, as well as five hundred thousand in New York alone. There's thirty thousand in New York alone. He's saying, and over five hundred thousand. Wow, yeah, it's it was pretty wild. I mean, I, we were watching drone shotage footage of um, them using an island, uh, an abandoned island, to to bury unnamed bodies at some point. Um, and I remember, wow. I remember the month three. Um, riding through the city i was going up fifth avenue the wrong way because there was no cars on fifth avenue and i went and met a friend for coffee and, and we were like let's just go grab a bagel and a coffee and we sat in the park unwittingly no not knowing there was a hospital in front of us and it was just lined with semi-trailers um to put bodies and so that was a that was a real like you know wow moment whereas like a city like oh. us so when you think of a third world country first world country second world country you think in a place like new york you know, but even places like New York, we just weren't ready. I want to ask you about um, COVID. What did you? What changed in your business apart from obviously putting people off? What has changed in a positive way um, in in regards to what you've learnt? Because somebody asked me this during COVID. How how have you got something positive to pivot around the, the the COVID experience? And I said, well, actually, I fucking don't because I just put all my I just put eighty staff on furlough and and they may not get their jobs back and I may not be able to open my restaurant again. So I don't know about positive, but. Now that things are slowly getting back, have you found some new business models that, you know, from like in New York, for example, everybody's doing takeout and you would be, yeah. as one of our world-class chefs, appreciate this. Think of nothing worse than having to take all your great food and then put it in a box put and figure it out, put yeah. it in a bag and drive it five miles up the road and hope they enjoy it. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we were very lucky in a sense of, so when COVID first hit here last March, we were in the middle of summer season. Right. So we, Cape Town is very seasonal. So we've got winter and, and, and summer basically. So we'd had October, November, December, January, February, March. So we had six great months of trade where our restaurants were full every day for lunch and dinner. Wow. So we had very healthy bank accounts in each of our restaurants. So when we went into the first lockdown, had it happened in winter, it would have been a different story for us. Gotcha. So we went into it like cashed up as far as, you know, we were in a very um, healthy position. And initially we were told we were going into three weeks lockdown. So we didn't let any staff go. We didn't let any staff go over the last year old. We've got 300 odd staff. Um, obviously they went on to short time and they went on to reduce salaries, et cetera, et cetera. But what we did with all our senior management, we had Zoom meetings every single day. And we, we started analyzing our business and where, you know, when you're so busy, often you just ignore stuff that really you should be paying attention to. Sure. But you're so busy, often you don't. It just becomes the normal. Yeah. Um, so we spent weeks and weeks analyzing our business, um, how we can operate it better, how we can be more um, slick in our operation, how we can save costs without compromising what we do you know we i said we were never gonna 
get involved and there was an awful lot of stuff where people were saying with dying plan if you could you know donate your deposit to staff funding i didn't want to do that yep there was a load of restaurants that started selling vouchers i didn't want to do that i didn't want to take money from people not knowing whether i'd be there to to refund it when we reopened i didn't want to reopen a restaurant either with a whole load of people coming with vouchers that's money i spent a couple of months ago and then have no cash flow yep um i've never done a special in my life and wasn't about to start our businesses were geared i've always geared my business to look after locals we're not a tourist driven business we do have a lot of tourists but we don't rip tourists off yeah and we don't gear our restaurant to tourists um so because you you really depend on local market here in winter months so i've always kept my prices that locals can come so we were in a very very good position when the second lock came lockdown came down um you know obviously we'd spent an awful lot of that money i remortgaged my house i cashed in some pension funds um but during that some new opportunities came we opened a wonderful restaurant called tinswala on the coast in health bay which is amazing and it's been so successful touch wood since we opened amazing um that possibly wouldn't have come around except for COVID. right and then i got another amazing site in the cbd that came around during COVID, um which is a building that's 250 years old so our chefs and porters and whatever they changed their uniforms and we gave them hammers and chisels and they started renovating this building. We renovated this building. So everybody was kept busy during COVID and we turned it all into positives. You know, we started looking at um, stuff we could do to add value to generate more income. So we started what we call Chef's Warehouse Essentials, um, which is a whole load of little byproducts of the restaurant. So spice blends, sauces, dressings, oils that sort of thing and that's become we've now got a small little factory producing that so that's a new business that came out that's of, incredible um, yep. out of covid we've started a, a subscription-based magazine called broth which we're going to be launching very soon so there was a load of stuff that we we did uh during covid very positive and we're in a great position now i believe we're in an amazing position now so when the tourists do come back here and when the locals get confident to go back out again, we've got three, four new venues for them to come to. Um, That's amazing. A lot of people, unfortunately, closed here. Um, a lot of people closed. So I think we're in a very, very strong position. You also, um, you, you also, I mean, I think it's a pretty incredible that you've been able to do that. And I love the fact that you've got the restaurant staff building a restaurant because they're going to be essentially physically building a restaurant. They say you're going to have pride and, and feel like their, you know, blood, sweat and tears are involved. And you also started a foundation uh, to feed children, right? And if with your friend Isabella, is that correct? No, the, the foundation is called uh, Isabella. Oh, okay. Gotcha. It was founded by a, a, a chef here called Marshall Jans. Right. Who in Franchuk who feeds uh, young school children. Okay. So she makes sure they get one hot meal every day at school. Um, and during um, COVID, it became an issue because not only were the kids not getting fed, but the whole family wasn't getting fed. Jesus. So um, there was five restaurants in Franchuk that we opened our kitchens and we turned them into soup kitchens, if you like. Yep. So all of our staff work for free 
They drove themselves to Franschhoek. Um, all of the product was pretty much donated by local farmers, from some of our suppliers, uh, from local people in the village. Obviously, we donated the venue and, you know, the gas, electricity, our time, etc. But by the end of it, we were feeding up to 10,000 families. Wow. Um, per week. Between wow. five restaurants. No, it was a, it was a, that's incredible. A serious, yeah, it was awesome. And it, you know what, Robert, it was the best food I've ever cooked in my life. It's the most satisfaction I've ever got out of cooking was, was doing those, um, soup kitchens. Wow. It just, it, for me, it was, uh, to be in a position where you could give back like that was, was a very humbling thing. It it's it, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. We, we did an interview, which is coming up in the show as well, uh, soon, similar story somebody actually had a business that was scaling really well and COVID came and they ended up feeding the hospital workers because ironically in new york city a lot of the hospitals didn't have any food because they shut all the restaurants down and the staff no. couldn't, staff couldn't leave the building because they were basically in there 80 hours a week you know just trying to survive and he started feeding um the hospitals he because he was dating a nurse and she was like bring me lunch and he instead and she meant you know bring me a couple of boxes and he came with a thousand boxes so it's it's, wow. it's amazing our restaurant tours are really resourceful like that and one of the things that i i continuously bring up in in the show is that every restaurant tour i've met nobody wants to get out and everybody's just pivoting and doing what they can and solution proofing mm. things so that they can move forward you've got a foundation if i'm correct um, and I was reading in regards to a chef of yours that um, passed away in a car accident. Can you tell us yeah. a little bit about that? Um, Mark worked for us at one of our restaurants in Constantia, and he went home. During first lockdown, he went home to Port Elizabeth. And I think it was about two months when, after when we decided we were going to reopen the restaurant. Um, obviously, we called all the staff, and he on his way back to work, driving back to Cape Town, he was involved in a car accident when he died. Him and his friend both were killed. So we've set up an internship for underprivileged kids who want to get into our industry, who can't afford to go to a culinary school. Um, and we are in the process this week of interviewing the candidates. So we had 180 applicants. Wow. Um, and we're going to put one in each restaurant. So, and it's a four-year apprenticeship. And they'll work between all our restaurants under all our head chefs. And we've got a, a full-time teacher who's going to do all the classroom side of it. Um, and we will take seven, we'll take one on for every restaurant. So hopefully this time for in four years time, we'll have 40 um, young interns with us. Wow, and then at the end of it, we'll guarantee each one of them a job and if they don't want to stay within our group, we will find them a job here or overseas. We will guarantee them that. But we're going to sponsor them their uniforms, um, knives, the whole thing. We're going to that's fantastic. A, yeah. What a great initiative off the back of something so tragic. Yeah. Yeah. That's obviously, um, yeah. So tell, I, I want to talk to you about a touchy subject because I'm actually part of this past like you are. You and I... Uh, probably very similar age, like 25. We're about 25 years old, both of us, right now. Um, I'm guessing. 24, man. Yeah, 20, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I look a bit older. But <laughs> we came from an era where there was a period that everybody made it sexy, um, and it wasn't. And we came from a very aggressive background, you know, aggressive kitchens. Yeah. We haven't exactly been angels ourselves. I can certainly say I wasn't, uh, I wasn't, you know, I might not have been as extreme as some, but I was not 
I was part of an era where drugs, rock and roll, everybody was screwing everybody. Um, ironically enough, not part of sexual harassment like they was in New York, but it was more that everybody was on something to just to get through the day and kitchens were basically battlegrounds, you know, of yeah. mise en place and getting it done. And I want to touch on this because I know our executive producer talked to you about it and the mental health programs around it. I know in Australia we have... Um, uh, are you okay? Which is a suicide yeah. kind of prevention program. Yeah. I know I counselled a ton of my chefs. You know, I had sixty-five, you know, chefs at one point in one restaurant, and then before you know it, there's two hundred and fifty of them, and they're all got their own story. Where are you in all this? Because I know I've spent a lot of soul-searching time um, that uh, I looked at where. I looked at my past and I thought to myself, why was I angry in the kitchen? I wasn't always, but I, it was definitely times where the pressure was too much. I was never trained mentally how to, tr to challenge this. We weren't the healthiest people in the world, even if I thought running every day would make a difference, but it was also eating the hours, you know, uh, you know, the accolades. They, they were, you know, having food writers in, you know, who, how many of our staff would have ever loved that experience when one of us was running an operation, there's a food writer in. I mean, it, your whole business is revolved around that one review. Tell me a little bit about you yeah. because I know both of us had our moments and, and what you've learned and, and, and have you changed? Um, I mean, I don't know where you were with your sex, drugs and rock and roll. I missed all of that. <laughs> but, um, I'm, I must say, and I say it on a regular basis, I'm not proud of how I used to be. Yeah. I mean, at, at Bank and Cassis and 41, I was a complete arsehole. Yeah. Like a complete, complete arsehole. The way I treated some people, I'm still embarrassed today to think about how I treated people. Um, and it was, I don't know if it was my ego or my ambition or whatever it was, but it was wrong yeah. to treat people like that. It really was. I mean, um, you know, I mean, Gordon Ramsay's made it famous in America and still, surprisingly enough, I'm surprised to show... I mean, like, I have a lot of respect for him. He was very kind to me and, and you know, put me in one of the books that he was um, published. And But I, I really think that whole screaming moment, you know, and I've been, you know, I've been known for that as well. Not, not so yeah. much like Gordon Ramsay, but uh, I've been thinking about it a lot and there's a real, there's a real mental trauma there that... Is, is hard to understand. And I, I, you know, I've, I've, I've had a lot of chef friends, male and female, because people always think it's always men, but it's actually both. I had a particular chef that she'd worked with me for a very long time and, and trained under Ramsey. And I literally had to let it go. I mean, I started dealing with it about five or six years into one of my restaurants, icebergs, which, you know, was synonymous and it became yeah. an epic and it was world. And then we got in the top 100, it made it even worse. Um, and I remember having to let one of my chefs go because she just couldn't manage people. She Anything that wasn't perfect, they were out. The plate was across the room. And I'm like, we can't do that. And, and yeah. so how are you different now? Like, I certainly know I am, but I certainly have my moments where I can feel it tingling if I'm back in an operation. I can feel it tingling behind me and I go and do something about it straight away. What do you do? Yeah. Look, I think just to go back to Ramsey, yep. I, don't, I don't think the way he comes across on TV does our industry any good. No. I mean, I think, I think he's an, a brilliant chef. And I think that should be enough for him to have stardom and fame and TV programs and publish books. Um, me personally, I mean, we've got retail. I won't sell a Gordon Ramsay book. Yeah. Um, because 
you know, I just don't agree with the way he treats people on TV. I think it's completely, completely wrong. If he can't, you know, just be proud enough of how brilliant he is as chef and show that off without having to humiliate and belittle people in front of millions of people on TV, I, I just think that's very sad. Do you think it's um, money? Do you think it's because, like, I mean, he is now one of the richest chefs in the world. And actually, yeah. you remember the many years he was with, I think, Blackstone, and he had all these restaurants. And I actually um, only talked to Josh Emmett, one of his chefs from Mays, who just opened a fantastic restaurant in New Zealand, and he just took one of my crew um, that worked in New York. And I, and I was talking to him, and it just kind of – I remember those days, Royal Hospital Road, for the people that don't know, was one of – it still is – one of Gordon Ramsay's flagship kind of small room moments where I think it was three stars – do you think still is still is, um, and yeah. I don't really follow that uh, that much anymore. I don't, it's not really that relevant in New York. I think most people just you know march with their mouths. Um, um, yeah. But I wonder, you know, is there there a moment where money's really just got in front of it, like you know, it, because it's now a source of entertainment, pays him incredibly well. No, I mean it's it, it sells, you know, it gets it's, it it sells TV, it gets viewers, you know, people love to watch that shit. Um, and that's what it is. But me personally, I've, I've, I've changed completely. Yeah, I, I, I don't shout and scream anymore. I really don't. Um, I, I don't allow my head chefs to do it yep. um, anymore. If it happens, we, we need to sit down, discuss it, work out what's wrong. You know, do you need more staff to prevent this happening? Is, are you working under too much pressure or whatever it is? We try and resolve it. Um, you know, and I don't want to see young kids having anxiety attacks in my kitchens. And we've, we've had it. I don't want to see that anymore. Um, you know, I want to make sure everybody sits down at a certain point of the day. And we do it now. They sit in the restaurant, even if we have, still have customers. I don't care. You know, we're all human. We all need to eat. When did, you, um, when, when did you really acknowledge this to yourself? And when did you start to change? And what did you do? The last few years when, you know, you know, I stepped out of the kitchen a few years ago and started focusing more on the business and business opportunities. And then I think, you know, somebody said to me, uh, another chef who had, who had a few restaurants and him and I were having dinner together or something. And I asked him, you know, he said to me, if you want to step out of the kitchen, you've got to be prepared for your standards to drop 10 or 20 percent because nobody's ever going to plate the food like you're going to. They don't have the palate like you have. Um they don't have the eye for detail like you have. And you've got to be prepared to let the standard drop 10 or 20%. Which is and a I've lot. <laughs> Which we subsequently know. Well, it's know. a lot. Yeah, but yeah. you know what? Then I've got young chefs who work for us who I learn so much off every day. And they've probably improved at 10 or 20%. Um, so I don't look at that, that the standard has dropped 10 or 20%. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's a plate of food. You know, I've got, I've got friends who are doctors. And, and they go into surgery every day and they save people's lives. They go in and it's life and death, you know? And this is for young kids or middle-aged people or whatever. I mean, that's a fucking stressful job. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. There's a plate of fucking food. Yeah, but that's I think it's, one of, it's, it's really interesting that you say that because I, often when people would say, and, and, you know, with the really cool books and, and you know, we all loved Anthony Bourdain and, and they were talking, you know, and he was very open about it um, and... and uh, it's kind of interesting when people would try to sex up the kitchen being a certain way, like a rock and roll band, you know, like we're all in rehab afterwards yeah. and, you know, ah, oh, yeah, but that was the time. But what was really interesting is that nobody prepares you for it. 
Nobody, um, it's not war. When people say it's like a battleground and war, I'm like, it's nothing like war. We're cooking broccoli. We're not mm. shooting people. But, you know, I turned this this moment on with a few chefs that I counseled with their anger. And, you know, one of the things I said to them, I said, I want you to think of it like this. Every time you see somebody smoking, they're trying to breathe. Every time you see somebody screaming, they're in pain. And and once I got him, that, that particular chef, to turn his brain into that, he realized that when he was yelling, he was screaming in pain. And he changed, his, and you know, and of course, many other things, diet, getting physical exercise, knowing when you're having anxiety and not pretending you're, you're, you're blaming somebody else for blurting out X, you know, yeah. what is anxiety? Like in our day, did we even know what that was? I don't even know that word was existed in, in our era, the word anxiety. No, we just thought guys were weak. Yeah. I mean, you know, what I love about New York though is I, I had great therapy that showed me I had a bunch of trauma from kitchens, like a bunch. I was in, I left school at 14. I started in kitchens um, and I discovered that, but that came through therapy. And in New York, it's great because if you don't have two therapists, people are like, you're not a real New Yorker. So, um, <laughs> but I had it. And then what I realized with therapy was do it because you might feel broken, you need guidance, but then keep it up just to maintain that you're on the right path. As, and, you know, yeah. can you imagine you and I standing in a bar? And I remember a couple of times we'd, we'd be at the Grand Pacific Blue, Blue Room drinking grupper. Can you imagine either of us going, hey, man, are you got a good therapist? Like, it just, it'd mean yeah. you're nuts, or you're weak, you're not strong. Whereas now it's quite the opposite. If you've got a therapist, you know, you're actually more in tune with who you are. No, absolutely. I mean, we, we I try now work with my chefs to make them aware of, you know, to watch their staff in right. order to try and prevent stuff happening before it happens. Right. You know, try and identify a young kid who's got a problem. Yeah. Or someone who comes in and their mood isn't the same. Or, you know, their manner has changed or they're becoming aggressive or they're becoming late all of a sudden, three, four mornings in a row or whatever. Yeah. Try and identify problems before they become big, big issues. And we're just, yeah, I think we're just, I think we're just kinder. Yeah. Um, you think you're and, a little you know, bit more. You think you're a little bit more relaxed, like I am now. Where you go, it is just restaurants. You know, like you know, we take our yeah. restaurants seriously, but not our ourselves as much anymore. Honestly, I, I I really don't. I don't stress about the stuff I used to stress about. Yeah. I really don't. Yeah. I, I agree mean, with you. If I, someone has if someone has to wait five minutes or ten more minutes. I'm sorry. Just. You know, it's not the end of the world. Yeah, yeah. Have another glass of wine or whatever. I just, and I don't suffer idiots in the restaurant anymore. I don't let guests mistreat our staff. Yeah. I won't tolerate it. Yeah, I think um, uh, I think there's that classic one of how to fire your customers, right? I mean, I remember, unfortunately, he was a very angry chef, but uh, Charlie Trotter, who passed away, who you know, um, yeah. you know, he was He's great. And, he, and one of my very closest friends was his business partner and, I remember reading the kitchen sessions by Charlie Trotter and I remember seeing his books yeah. out of Chicago and he was really the first plant forward kind of thinking chef and genius and whatever. And, and apparently an in incredibly toxic um, uh, uh, kitchen environment. And he actually talks in one of his books about firing your customers. And it was actually a moment where I did agree with one of his styles was at some point you have to say, to, I remember at icebergs actually once somebody said to me, they were really rude to our waiter. And then somebody, one of the managers said to me, like, table 52 or whatever it was, they're a little bit painful. And, you know, and then they yelled at one of the staff to say, you know, what kind of restaurant doesn't have avocado? And I was like, what? So I went out to the table 
because I and, and a manager's looking at me going, don't go to the table. It'll be fine. Yeah. And I was like, no, fuck, I'm going to the table. Nobody talks to my <laughs> stuff like that, right? And I go to the table and the, and the guy goes to me, what kind of fucking Italian restaurant doesn't have avocado? And I'm like, an Italian one. I said, we don't eat avocado. You know, and, and I remember just saying to him, I literally just said, I put the bill down for his first two drinks and told him to leave. And he goes, well, are you still going to charge me for the drinks? I said, why would I give it to you for free? You're never coming back and you're still going to badmouth me. I might as well take the extra 30 bucks or whatever it was. And I remember, yeah. you know, I remember that was a pivotal moment for my aggression out of the kitchen to calm down and also to, I kicked a couple of restaurateurs out of my restaurant once just for manhandling my staff. But it's kind of an interesting dynamic now because it's so competitive, particularly like New York, the restaurant environment is so competitive and you know if you make one person happy, they tell at least you know, 60 to 70% of their friends. But you, you you make somebody unhappy, they tell everybody, including people they don't know, you know, the ratio of that. When you're monitoring this in your company when it comes to quality control and you read your online reviews and sometimes they're crazy, how does it make you feel? Because you're still going to feel I've, something. I've stopped doing that. Right. I've stopped it. I don't read TripAdvisor. I don't do Facebook anymore. I don't do any of that. That's fantastic. I really don't. Yeah. It's an absolute waste of time. Uh, if you don't have the balls or the time to pull the waiter over and say, I'm not happy with this dish or the service is shit or I didn't get the right bottle of wine or whatever your issue is. If you can't say it in the restaurant and you need to go home and two hours later, sit on a computer and put it on TripAdvisor, we've got something here called the good, bad and the ugly. And it's just a toxic site for miserable people to go home. It's already a toxic name, right? <laughs> and that's, no, it's just, it's, it's, it's shocking. Yeah. And you know, the amount of young chefs who call me and say, oh, I've just got this review. And I'm saying, fucking ignore it. Just go back to work and do what you do. Ignore it. Delete it. Why do you even follow it? Stop wasting your time. I don't follow any of that stuff. Because firstly, it's a complete waste of time. If you give me constructive criticism, I love constructive criticism, but give it to me to my face. Yeah. Don't write, or you know what? Write to me personally. Yeah. I'll call you. I'll speak to you. I'll invite you back to my restaurant, whatever. One-on-one. But don't go and attack me on a social media platform. Yeah, a- I think I think it was um I don't know if it was Marco Pierre right, and I might bastardize this story, but I I remember him talking about people that came in and they were basically busting his balls in the restaurant, and he said it's like me coming to your house and basically telling yeah. telling you I don't like your wife's hairstyle. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like and because and we yeah. te- we're telling a story through food, right? We're we're telling something yeah. about ourselves, something personal. Um, it, it, it's really an interesting because it's been a forever thing. You know, in yeah. our era, there was no internet. There was no email. I even get, I laugh when I say that now, but we didn't, we didn't have online bloggers. We didn't have anonymous. We had fax machines. We had fax, but we got a few, I'm sure I got a few complaints through the fax <laughs> machine, um, yeah, you know, but, but, you know, like nothing was anonymous, right? And, and, yeah. you know, I remember once I said, even before online, I said to one of my restaurant friends, I said, wouldn't it be interesting to have a microphone on every table to hear the conversation about your restaurant? At the end of the night, he goes, "You'd kill yourself." He goes, yeah, you, you, right. you, "You know," he goes, "You wouldn't want to be, you know, in that moment. You would not want to be in that in that position where you're hearing everything everybody says. You're a perfectionist. You're trying to have people to have a great time." So tell me something. You're also involved. I'm going to pivot away from all the dark side of the moon. You're also involved in yeah. some game parks. Is that right? Yes, I work with a company called Singita. Uh huh. Um, they're very top end. They are probably the top end luxury, um, 
safari lodges. So there's five of them here in South Africa. So there's two in Kruger Park right. and three in Sabi Sands. And then the rest are in uh, East Africa. So one up in Rwanda, one in Zimbabwe, um, and seven in Tanzania. And what are you doing so with them? I work, um, well, I've just started again now. I was, I was there two weeks ago. Um, but during COVID, obviously, we couldn't travel. Sure. So I've just restarted, which is brilliant. It's beautiful to be back there. But um, I oversee all kitchen operations. Okay. And restaurants, front of house. And again, I come up with all the concepts, do a lot of training, look after. We've got uh, two culinary schools where we take kids from the community, 10 students in each school. We put them through a year's course, and then we offer them employment at the end of that every year. Um, and I spend one week every month at either the South African properties or I go to East Africa and um, spend a week in East Africa. Sounds like but a horrible amazing, job. Horrible job. No, it's a shocker. It's shocking. But they're an amazing company to work with. Um, and I'm very close with a lot of the staff there. I mean, there's 1,700 staff. Obviously, I don't know them all. Right. But our staff go up and do training and part of training as we bring their staff into our restaurants um and i've been with them almost five years now and it's just it's it's amazing awesome. and i deal direct with the owner and his family oh, wow. um, we've become very good friends so it's a really it's a it's a lovely partnership it's and, a, it's and, a great partnership what's happening in barcelona tell us about barcelona barcelona <laughs> i've got a business partner um here in cape town and she's also a landlord. She's, okay. she's a landlord and a business partner, but she she owns a hotel here in Cape Town. Okay. And uh, we have the restaurant you ate at that night. Yep. She's my landlord yep. in that restaurant. Gotcha. Right. But we've also partnered in this new restaurant complex that we've done, and she also has three restaurant, three hotels in Spain, just outside Barcelona. Wow. Um, and she has a vineyard over there, and she has a big farm, and the whole thing. And a couple of years ago, she asked me to help her with the kitchens in Spain. She wanted me to send chefs over to help teach her chefs. Right. So I sent one of our young chefs over, a guy called Angelo Scirocco, very, very cool young chef. Yep. And he was in a sort of lost space at that time. So I said to him, listen, go to Spain for three months, chill, have a bit of fun, you know, have a look, add a little bit of value to the kitchen. What was his and name? Phone me, Angelo. Uh, Angelo Scirocco. Okay. And um, he phoned me after the three months and he'd fallen in love with the financial director's daughter. They could go either way. Yeah, well, it, yeah, I think since it's gone pear-shaped. But he wrote to me, he phoned me and he says, I don't want to come back. But he says, I don't want to stay within the hotel. So I said, what do you want to do? He says, I want to open a restaurant in Barcelona. So I said, okay, go find one. So he walked the streets of Barcelona. He put himself through school every single day. He now speaks fluent Spanish, writes Spanish. Um, we've got a small little restaurant in the Gothic Quarter in Barcelona. Uh, it's very small. It got, I don't follow TripAdvisor, but it got to number one yep. in TripAdvisor in Barcelona, which Amazing. is a massive achievement when you look at what's in Barcelona. But Angelo's ambition is to have a Michelin star. That's his dream. Um, and during COVID, we, we chatted a lot. So he, we, we're busy now. I think we have a second site. So he needs a bigger space, bigger kitchen, more staff. Yep. 
uh, probably a better address. So we're, we're, we're in the process of finding that firm. Um, and we'll keep the other restaurant because we've got staff who can continue that for us. And Angelo, hopefully, will go and get his Michelin star. That's it sounds, his it, it sounds like and, he's on his if, way. If there's anybody who can get it, it's that young guy. I mean, he's a he's a he's a machine. He's just uh, he's another Brett Graham in my eyes. Oh, really? Wow. Well, yeah, it sounds he's, like he's, he's on the right path. So something yeah. something really interesting about your businesses as well. You know, we were doing some homework on your company, and 99% of all your ceramics, tableware, furniture pretty much, you know, is local, is is not yeah. imported, not made anywhere else. That's actually not as easy as everybody may think, right? Because I remember in, in Bali, I opened a bunch of restaurants and Indonesia has a surcharge on imported furniture because they think they can make everything. And you know, the classic Bentwood, Thonay chair, yeah. you know, that's everywhere in bistros and it's still a beautiful chair to this day. Just to bring one of those into Indonesia was like $1,000 a chair um, for a $170 yeah. chair. So, so that, and the reason I'm saying that is because not everything that you want in a restaurant is necessarily manufactured in South Africa. How did you manage to no, do that? it's not. But you know what? Honestly, there is a South Africa since I've come here 15, 16 years ago. I mean, if you look at the restaurant scene alone, I mean, it's just evolved like you can't believe. We've got an amazing talent. It, it, it reminds me of when I first went to Australia, which was like over 30 years ago. Um, you know, there was Neil Perry, Tetsuya Wakudu, and the Doyle brothers. Yep. And that was about it. You know, there was no Peter Gilmore's, there was no Matt Moran's, there was no Liam Tomlin's, there was no, you know, all that whole load of young next generation chefs who, who came behind all of them, right. who they bred even um and 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 south africa is like that and it's the same in art and design and music and fashion and in every industry it over here it's just booming and booming and booming and booming and booming um and we found the most amazing art the most amazing lights the most amazing crockery you can't believe yep you know better than what you get out of japan um furniture uh every, everything we've got here carpentry um lighting uh yeah are we, are we talking and, and are product. we talking produce as well food product yeah it's getting better and better and better why is it my, why does my producer's note say something about no italian olive oil is there something you got against us or no that's that no nothing against <laughs> you at all it's just that the, this shit's the, <laughs> the project is called local yeah um and everything in it is is local so you know it's, we we produce some great olive oils here yep um and and the idea was you know, during COVID, it was to try and help local industry to, to rebuild local economy. Um, and it, it's more sustainable. It's cheaper. Um, and a lot of it's better. Yeah, I mean, look, I agree. The olive oil game, we no, could I'm have joking, a... But, no, 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 but, no, no, it's fair. It's a fair call. Like, I mean, the olive oil game... Um, we could have a whole show on it if you go into the deep dark side of olive oil manufacturing across the globe yeah i'm teaching a lot of my young chefs these days about purity and and actually the italian way isn't actually to go into another country and bring italian uh you know being italian australian bring your italian products there the italian way is to go into another country and use their products in an italian fashion you know, so yeah. so you know, I agree with you on that stuff because I mean, the olive oil world world is there's a lot of corruption. There's a lot of people that don't know what they're buying. You know, I I explained it to no, somebody. Absolutely. You know, you, you know, some of the biggest brands that I can't say otherwise I'll get sued because we're in America and you get sued for everything. Um, 
you know, mix their oils in three different countries, but because the majority of it's mixed in, in, a, in a certain country, they can call it Italian olive oil, even though it may have five different types of olives in there and it's blended. And yeah, it's a very, it's a strange world. What, um, what would you tell your 20 year old self, Liam? Wow. My 20 year old self. What you, what, with what you know now. Whoa. Shit, that's difficult. It's a hard one. Um, I think I would have focused more on... I would have identified better kitchens to work in than what I did. Probably, not necessarily my 20-year-old, probably from like 17, 17 on. I, I wish, you know, I, I started my time in Ireland. Yep. And in Ireland, when I started cooking 40 years ago, it was a job. It wasn't a profession. It was a job. Um, there was nobody telling you go to London and work for Pierre Kaufman or the Rue Brothers or uh, go work at the Dorchester Hotel or go to the Savoy or, you know, there was none of that. There was nobody to give you, to mentor you or guide you. Um, you know, kids nowadays, you go onto the internet and you can, you can be in any kitchen in the world. You can read about every chef in the world. You can buy a book from every great chef in the world. You can watch a video of every chef in the world. Um, so it was very different. Like you said, we didn't have internet and everything. Um, I think I would have selected where I, where I, chefs I worked under probably better. Um, I would have used my time a little bit better. I would have studied my profession harder. Um, having said that, I haven't done bad. There, there, when know, you say some... when you say different chefs, what do you mean? Do you mean that you know different mentality or different style? No, I think I probably would have tried to go to France and work for a few three Michelin star chefs in France. Yep. Um, I would have loved to go and work maybe three Michelin in Italy. Probably would have loved to go and work in some of the top restaurants, say in Hong Kong or Tokyo or something like that. I think I should have pushed myself. I could have pushed myself a bit harder. Yeah, it's a very, um, I mean, when you're ambitious, though, it's very easy to island hop, you know, from place to place because instead of just mapping it out, you keep getting opportunities because once you're, people realize you're great at what you do, every opportunity yeah. keeps distracting you from the main game. So that's not, and you know, in an, in an era of no internet, it wasn't like you could Google the top 10 restaurants. We had to no, read about it. I used to get kicked out of the bookstore. Um, I remember from my brother's restaurant when he had the best Italian for like almost 18 years. And I, I was an apprentice. I did a little time there and I would get kicked out of the bookstore because I was trying to copy recipes out of a book because A, we didn't have a phone, B, we didn't have the internet, yeah. and I couldn't afford, I was I think I was making like $80 a week. I couldn't, literally $80 a week. I couldn't afford, book. a book was like 60 bucks, and I was like, I can't buy yeah. this. And they would constantly go, you can't be in here, and I'd be scribbling down, you know, three cups of this and two cups of that, and it was, it was crazy times. Yeah, good old days. Good old days. What's next for you? What's, what's really exciting you right now? Uh, we've got a new project that we, we've just done a deal on a building here in Cape Town, um, which is going to be three, three new concepts, three restaurants. Wow. Really excited about that. Um, my big dream, big ambition is to open a hotel. So um, I've always wanted to open a hotel. And I, I, we're, I'm having a few talks around that. That's, I would love to own a hotel. Ever yeah, since I, I've been a kid, I just sold out of. I, I just sold mine, but uh, I got to tell you, if you if you and I realized at age twenty that opening a hotel is a lot easier than opening a restaurant, we would have been very very wealthy by now. Yeah. Because you know, 
one room, design that room, location, sure, operations, but we're good at all those things, right? We're already good at operations. We get it all. And the profits of a hotel are a lot better than the profits of every plate yeah, of chicken you're trying no, to send absolutely. out to the, to the restaurant. So, that, that, you know, we live and learn, eh? It's we do. Just, yeah, that's something I would love. Um, I can't wait to travel again when yep. we can all start traveling again. I really miss traveling overseas. Um, really, really looking forward to that. And yeah, just staying strong and carrying on. Well, you've been amazing. You've got an amazing past and you've got an amazing future, obviously. And I love the fact that you've got such a great connection with all the chefs and you're helping the industry grow. We've been, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. It's been great to see you again. Great. I can't come, I can't wait to come back to Cape Town. I love, I love know. that, you know, the shark infested waters are just like Australia. So it's good fun for surfing, but um, thanks for being on the show and I hope you have a great day. Uh, absolute pleasure. It's lovely seeing you. Right? All right, folks, that's it for today's show. If you love what we do, we'd appreciate if you follow, share, and like us. We love our listeners. We love you, The Raw Hospitality Show, Season 2.